You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into cures for mental illness or new treatments and insights into the causes and ways to prevent mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry with the purpose of better informing the general public about mental health issues and reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, December 14, 2016. And before we go any further, just a program note, as it were, this will be the last new podcast for 2016. Uh, America's Web Radio will play archived episodes of Psychiatry Today on December 21st and 28th, and I'll be back with you again with a brand new podcast on January 4th, 2017. All right. But we're going to start off tonight's podcast with uh, an item about fake facts, remembered events that never happened. Now, when I first saw this article, just the title before I actually read the article about the research, it's like, oh, wow, there's so much in the news nowadays about fake news and people reading things on Facebook and elsewhere and thinking that they're true news stories, but it turns out that they're just fabricated outright uh, or they're rumor that were thought to be fact and later found to be debunked, even though long after they're found to be debunked, people continue to cling to them as fact. Take, for example, the Pizzagate story about a pizza place in Washington fronting a child sex ring. A pretty horrific example of how innocent people can be targeted with a story that's spuriously false. And even when someone goes in there shooting the place up, trying to break up this child sex ring that doesn't exist, people take that whole incident as confirmation that it is a real thing. And this whole thing was staged to mask the fact that it's real. It's remarkable how people will cling to, obviously, uh, untrue stories um, in the face of all evidence to the contrary. But, alas, that's not what this article was about, although potentially we could glean some insights from this research. Uh, it is instead about the fact 
that many people are prone to remembering events that never happened in their own lives. Um, in a study on false memories, Dr. Kimberly Wade in the Department of Psychology at the University of Warwick demonstrates that if we are told about a completely fictitious event from our lives and repeatedly imagine that event occurring, almost half of us would accept that it did. Over 400 participants in so-called memory implantation studies had fictitious autobiographical events suggested to them and it was found that around 50% of the participants believed to some degree that they had experienced those events. Participants in these studies came to remember a range of false events such as taking a childhood hot air balloon ride, playing a prank on a teacher, or creating havoc at a family wedding. 30% of participants appeared to remember the event. They accepted the suggested event, elaborated on how the event occurred, and even described images of what the event was like. Another 23% showed signs that they accepted the suggested event to some degree and believed it really happened. So together, those two groups of participants, that's more than half. Now, Dr. Wade and colleagues conclude that it can be very difficult to determine when a person is recalling actual past events as opposed to false memories, even in a controlled research environment, and more so in real-life situations. These findings have significance in many areas, raising questions about the authenticity of memories used in forensic investigations, courtroom, and therapy treatments. Moreover, the collective memories of a large group of people or society could be incorrect due to misinformation in the news, for example, like we were talking about, having a striking effect on people's perceptions and behavior. Dr. Wade comments on the importance of this study, says we know that many factors affect the creation of false beliefs and memories, such as asking a person to repeatedly imagine a fake event or to view photos to jog their memory. But we don't fully understand how all these factors interact. Large-scale studies like this mega-analysis move us a little bit closer. The findings that a large portion of people are prone to developing false beliefs is important. We know from other research that distorted beliefs can influence people's behaviors, intentions, and attitudes. Scientists have been using variations of this procedure for 20 years to study how people can come to remember wholly false experiences. Well, <clears throat> I definitely think there are very important implications 
of studies like this. First of all, let's go back to what was said about memories of large groups of people collectively. The collective memories of a large group of people or society could be incorrect due to misinformation in the news. And there you have it. So there may be a connection between this research and the whole idea of fake news in that if there, a story is put out there, even if it's false, and it's repeated often enough, enough people begin to believe it, accept it as fact, remember things the way they were described to have happened in the fake news story instead of what was real. So this definitely is a phenomenon that can influence people to believe things that never happened. Now, let's take it out of the whole fake news story controversy. Uh, there's another area in which this phenomenon can cause very, very serious problems, and this really is insidious. I'm talking about the whole controversy about uh, trauma therapy and implanted memories from trauma therapy. Unfortunately, there are incompetent and or unscrupulous therapists, psychotherapists I'm talking about, who seem to have an agenda or an idea or philosophical bent that uh, they're going to find out that people suffered from trauma, specifically sexual trauma. And in the course of this therapy, the suggestion to the therapy client that they must have been sexually abused leads to these types of false memories. Uh, people will take that suggestion of their therapist, which is made in response to the client having certain symptoms, which may be very typical of victims of sexual abuse. But let's say the scenario is prior to the therapy, there was no evidence or recollection of any specific incidents. So are the memories that evolved during the course of the therapy about sexual abuse, including details of the incidents and details about the alleged perpetrator of the sexual abuse, are, are they real uncovered memories that were suppressed because of the impact of the, on the victim of the trauma, which is possible, that does happen. Uh, in fact, it was just last week when we talked about how um, memories can be, or actually, uh, no, that's, I'm sorry, this is going to be our next article that we're going to talk about as far as um, repressing memories that were severely traumatic. Or is it possible that due to the influence of the therapist who is not careful to avoid the possibility of uh, unintentionally, if not intentionally, implanting memories, that this is something that never happened, but thinking about it more and more, uh, a person creates a scenario and uh, whereby something did happen and they become convinced of that. Before you know it, there is a prosecution of someone close to them, uh, perhaps an innocent relative, perhaps even an innocent parent, and this uh, in some cases has completely ripped families apart. And there were some cases 
that were prosecuted against uh, schools and teachers uh, who were later exonerated when it was found that uh, the incidents never took place as described. So really there are serious consequences when people evolve a false memory. Um, it can ruin lives. It can put people in prison potentially who don't belong there. And it can nev negatively influence society in ways that are playing out right before us every day in the news uh, when it comes to these false narratives being put out there and repeated often enough till people believe them as fact. Um, well, next on Psychiatry Today, we will be talking about um, you know, how it is you may be able to forget a traumatic experience and how the brain helps you with that. We'll have that and more mental health-related news when we come back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Merry Christmas from all of us at America's Web Radio. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up, can you unconsciously forget an experience? Everyone has done something they probably want to forget. Falling face-first on the stage at your high school graduation, or asking a woman how far along she is, only to find out she isn't even pregnant. Wanting to squash these not-so-great memories 
is human nature. But is it possible to intentionally forget a traumatic experience? Darlene McLaughlin, psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor with the Texas A&M College of Medicine, explains how your mind may help you get through a traumatic event. As Emily Dickinson once said, the mind is wider than the sky. And this is very true when it comes to the complexity of storing memories. The cerebrum, or forebrain, makes up the largest part of the brain, and it is covered by a sheet of neural tissue known as the cerebral cortex, which envelops the part of our brain where memories are stored. Items in short-term memory, such as a telephone number remembered for a few moments, will often be forgotten by the brain unless there is constant repetition. Long-term memory is typically involved in retaining information for lengthier periods of time, like remembering the birth of your child. There is increasing debate over whether we actually forget something or if it just becomes more difficult to remember. In other words, more difficult to retrieve from memory as opposed to the memory no longer being there. How long-term memory functions has multiple answers dependent on different types of memories and different ways they work. Procedural memory the unconscious memory of skills, for example, knowing how to ride a bike, is dependent upon repetition and practice and will operate automatically like muscle memory. Declarative memory, knowing what, is memory of facts, experiences, and events. Although your brain does typically automatically store your experiences into a form of memory, there are times where your brain walls off a memory of a traumatic experience for its own good. This is uh, what we were talking about before. This is where your brain actually brings about its own protective mechanism. That when you suffer a very, very serious traumatic event, uh, your brain will protect you from remembering that by sort of like the article just said, walling it off. If the brain registers an overwhelming trauma, it can then essentially block that memory in a process called dissociation or detachment from reality. The brain will attempt to protect itself. Dissociation causes a lack of connection in a person's thoughts, memory, and or sense of identity and it's extremely common to experience a case of mild dissociation. For example, if you've recently gotten lost in a book or daydreamed at work, then you've experienced a common form of mild dissociation. Now, a severe and more chronic form of dissociation is seen in mental illnesses and rare forms of dissociative disorders such as dissociative identity disorder, which was once called multiple personality disorder. Usually cases of this are caused by severe repeated 
trauma, usually a combination of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, repeatedly over several years early on in someone's life. Uh, it's rare that you find someone with dissociative identity disorder who has not experienced that degree of trauma. What happens is the brain dissociating while the trauma is taking place to uh, protect itself against remembering this horrific event becomes a chronic recurring thing and that leads to the disorder. The same way the body can wall off an abscess or a foreign substance or a foreign body to protect the rest of the body, the brain can dissociate from an experience. In the midst of the trauma, the brain may wander off and work to avoid the memory. However, of course, not all psyches are alike, and what may be severe trauma for one person may not be perceived as being severe for another person. A person's genetic makeup and their environment can both contribute to how the trauma is received. There is still a great debate in the scientific community between nature and nurture. The argument that determines if a person's development is predisposed in their DNA or if it is influenced mainly by environment. And it can be assumed that both play a role. A history of mental illness plays a role on how trauma is received. If the person shares the same genetic predisposition as the family member suffering a mental illness. Also, a child raised in a world where the message is that the parent is loving and present is likely to be more resilient. In other words, be better able to cope with trauma as opposed to a child raised in a household that doesn't feel safe. For example, if a child is raised in a loving home with good child development, they are more likely to process a traumatic event, such as a natural, uh, a natural disaster like war, uh, or uh, sorry, like a flood, fire, um, or storm, or even an unnatural disaster like war or combat or abuse, better than a kid not raised in a home with good, uh, loving parents. However, if a child's development had distrust, fear, or abandonment, then they may be more likely to respond to a traumatic event with the dissociative properties and symptoms. There is a belief that there is a threshold of trauma where the human brain cannot overcome without dissociation. Age, genetic factors, and environment can contribute to how high that person's threshold is and how their brain responds to severe trauma. These severe types of dissociation are frequently seen with someone who experiences significant trauma and may not happen to everyone who experiences the same trauma. Dissociation can happen as part of a post-traumatic stress disorder but these conditions can also be independent of each other. It may not be unusual for an individual to see small glimpses 
of a traumatic memory that they previously could not recall. What happens sometimes is that as the person becomes distant from the moment of trauma, the brain allows the memory to be released in packets of memory, so they may remember in short flashbacks or intrusive thoughts. And this is a phenomenon that is known to occur. Uh, someone who's a victim of trauma has long ago forgotten it, but something in their life may happen to trigger the uh, memories to come back. And it's typical that they would come back in little fits and starts like this. Um, and, of course, this needs to be processed in therapy, but that is not to be confused with, fortunately, the rare cases I was talking about in the first segment of tonight's podcast where uh, therapists uh, unintentionally or with some sort of agenda were implanting memories of abuse uh, into clients. Now, if someone is dealing with trauma, whether signs of dissociation are present or not, it can be a very overwhelming and scary experience. As these experiences can involve extremely sensitive topics, it's important to get expert help to move forward. The very first step is to seek therapy. Words allow us to get a handle on emotional experiences and memories that are embedded in emotional memory. Whether it's formal psychological treatment or confiding in a trusted person, it is best to talk to someone. So the take-home point is that, yes, uh, oftentimes when experiencing a severely traumatic event, uh, the brain may be able to protect us against recalling it, uh, but not in all cases. There are a lot of factors that determine that. Um, but as far as intentionally forgetting something that has already been stored in long-term memory, uh, that's something that is yet... Uh, really is impossible. Uh, believe it or not, there are researchers working on that uh, by <clears throat> certain techniques involving brain scanning and administering certain medications, but uh, this is in the very early stages, and it's not clear if they're going to be able to get that to work. Next up on psychiatry today, um, as the year is drawing to a close, perhaps there are some of you out there who are starting to think about those New Year's resolutions again. And perhaps some of them include the typical things, including exercising more. Well, I found another study that touts the benefit of exercise uh, there are numerous ones, and, and this is not news. It is a well-known fact that exercise helps improve thinking and memory. But yet, again, uh, another one comes up, and uh, I wanted to discuss it with you. And since I raised the issue of New Year's resolutions, let me say that I think making changes in behavior, uh, if it's something that we need or want to do or think would be good for us should be something that we think about year-round, not just as the new year approaches. 
Uh, but regardless, we'll get into this discussion of how exercise preserves brain volume, not only improves cognitive function after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Well, aerobic exercise preserves brain volume and improves cognitive function. It is not news that exercise improves cognitive function, things like attention, memory, concentration, but that it preserves brain volume. That is fairly new and interesting. Using an MRI technique, researchers found that adults with mild cognitive impairment, otherwise known as MCI, who exercised four times a week over a six-month period, experienced an increase in brain volume in specific areas of the brain. But adults who participated in aerobic exercise experienced greater gains than those who just did stretching exercises. The study was to be presented on November 30th at the annual meeting of the Radiological Society of North America. Even after uh, a short period of time, they saw aerobic exercise lead to a remarkable change in the brain. 
That, according to the study's lead investigator, Dr. Laura Baker from Wake Forest School of Medicine, the study included 35 adults with MCI, again, that's mild cognitive impairment, participating in a randomized controlled trial of exercise intervention. Individuals with MCI are at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, the most common form of dementia, which affects more than 5 million Americans today. The participants were divided into two groups. 16 adults, um, the average age of 63 years old, engaged in aerobic activity, including treadmill, stationary bike or elliptical training, four times a week for six months. A control group of 19 adults, average age 67 years, participated in stretching exercises with the same frequency. High-resolution brain MR images were acquired from all participants before and after the six-month activity period. The MRI results were compared using conventional and biomechanical metrics to measure the change in both brain volume and shape. They used high-resolution magnetic resonance images to measure anatomical changes within areas of the brain to obtain both data on the shape and volume of these areas. And the analysis revealed that for both the aerobic and the stretching groups, brain volume increased in most gray matter regions, including the temporal lobe, which is an area that supports short-term memory. Compared to the stretching group, the aerobic activity group had greater preservation of total brain volume, increased local gray matter volume, and increased directional stretch of brain tissue. Well, uh, among the participants of the stretching exercise group, the analysis revealed a local contraction or atrophy within the white matter connecting nerve fibers. Such directional deformation or shape change is partially related to the loss of volume of brain tissue, but not always. Directional changes without, uh, or, or, or directional changes in the brain rather, without local volume changes could be a novel biomarker for neurological disease. It may be a more sensitive marker for the tiny changes that occur in a specific brain region before volume changes are detectable on an MRI scan. Both MRI measures are important to the treatment of both MCI and Alzheimer's disease, which require the careful tracking of changes in the brain while patients engage in interventions including diet and exercise, to slow the progression of the disease. Study participants were tested to determine the effect of exercise intervention on cognitive performance. Participants in the aerobic exercise group showed statistically significant improvement in executive function after six months, whereas the stretching exercise group did not improve. While any type of exercise can be beneficial, if possible, 
aerobic activity may create potential benefits for higher, higher cognitive functioning. Well, so my reaction to the study is, at the very least, it's very important for people showing signs of mild cognitive impairment to get into an aerobic exercise program right away to preserve the brain volume and brain function that they have left, left and hopefully forestall or if not at least postpone the onset of Alzheimer's disease. But what about for the rest of people who have not yet been shown to have signs of mild cognitive impairment whose cognitive function is already still normal? Well, uh, can't help but think that for those folks, getting into an aerobic exercise program still could improve their cognitive function and improve their brain volume to such a degree that it might even prevent developing mild cognitive impairment. Uh, again, just more evidence that aerobic exercise in particular, as opposed to just a stretching routine, has definite benefits for cognitive function. Next up on psychiatry today. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues have really gone off on a tangent, in my opinion, of going back to using psychedelic drugs to enhance psychiatric treatment, be that um, to treat depression or anxiety or pain or enhance the process of psychotherapy. This was very popular in the 60s when these drugs first came out. Uh, there were a lot of psychiatrists and therapists who thought that LSD or acid would be a great way to enhance psychotherapy. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to drugs like that or marijuana, once the toxic effects on the brain of those drugs became known and it became very clear that basically what they do is induce a psychotic state, these ideas fell out of favor. It was briefly revived again in the 80s uh, when ecstasy or MDMA or became popular. Uh, but again, uh, when it became clear that ecstasy is toxic to brain cells and the serotonin pathways in the brain, much like LSD and other psychedelic drugs, uh, this fell out of favor. Recently, unfortunately, much to my consternation, these ideas are making a comeback. Uh, perhaps it is part of the whole movement to legalize recreational use of marijuana at best, or at least uh, decriminalize the medical use of marijuana for a host of diseases. Uh, but that would not normally include psychiatric diseases, um, in, at least that I know of. In most states where medical marijuana is approved, it's usually for other types of, of illnesses, uh, chronic pain, uh, intractable 
epilepsy, especially with children. And yet um, the idea that psychedelic abusable drugs can be helpful for patients um, is back and unfortunately won't go away. Um, now, when I saw this next article we're going to talk about, about how some research are actually giving cancer patients mushrooms to alleviate their anxiety, I thought, what is happening? They're really going off the deep end this time and going down a very, very negative road. But nonetheless, I'll present the article to you and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look at what may be happening. But as I said, psychedelic medicine, as it were, long taboo is again moving back toward the mainstream. In fact, two new studies show the hallucinogenic drug psilocybin, the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms, might relieve anxiety and depression in cancer patients. Dozens of distressed patients treated under controlled conditions at two prestigious medical centers saw spirit-lifting effects that lasted at least several weeks after taking the magic mushroom drug, according to results published recently in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. In an unusual move, the journal also published 10 commentaries from experts in psychiatry and end-of-life care and drug policy. The experts said the studies were small and preliminary, but all of them supported continued research. They suggest that psilocybin, while still illegal outside of studies, is, quote, well within the accepted scope of modern psychiatry. That was an editorial by David Nutt. Um, no, I'm not kidding. That really is his name, David Nutt, but with two T's a professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College in London, a very respected, prestigious medical center indeed. But the benefits remain unconfirmed and largely unexplained, the commentator said. Just how a hallucinogenic experience might lift anxiety and depression over weeks or months is the big question. The studies were conducted with 29 patients at New York University Langone Medical Center, again, a prestigious medical center, and 51 patients at another prestigious center, Johns Hopkins University. All had advanced cancers and were anxious or depressed. Make no mistake, I am certainly not indifferent to the suffering of these folks, and we definitely need to be able to help them, but I don't think with psychedelic drugs. We'll be back with more after this break to discuss that and other mental health issues. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. 
and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about how some researchers at several respected prestigious medical centers have taken the very unusual step of giving cancer patients who are suffering from anxiety and or depression psilocybin, in other words, magic mushrooms, to treat their anxiety and depression. Uh, Again, this was 29 patients at uh, NYU Medical Center and 51 patients at Johns Hopkins uh, University Medical Center. The patients reported dreamlike visions and heightened emotions typically produced by this drug. And in the days and weeks after taking it, therapists helped them sort through what many saw as mystical experiences of connection and love. The reported result immediate sharp declines in anxiety and depression in patients treated first when compared with initially untreated patients and those who got delayed treatment also improved and up to 80% were less distressed at the end of the studies than at the beginning. Remarkable results. But don't expect your local hospice to offer hallucinogenic trips anytime soon. Any studies would require federal approval. Now, I wasn't sure why the article commented um, saying that it would be offered by a hospice. It did not say in the article about this research that the cancer patients were terminal. 
Uh, I suppose some of them may have been, but that was not mentioned. Uh, they were just cancer patients, and they were advanced, but not necessarily terminal. Well, again, despite the admittedly remarkably positive results of the study, 80%, um, I definitely have some serious concerns and reservations about giving people these dangerous psychedelic drugs. Uh, first of all, the toxic effects of these drugs are well known. Uh, psilocybin and other chemicals like it. Basically what's happening is you are purposely inducing a psychotic state. And of course people find the hallucinations and, and the high of being on these drugs pleasant. This is why people take and abuse these drugs because it can be a very uh, enjoyable experience. I have to admit I am surprised that people felt the benefits of them for you know going on uh, several weeks after taking it. Uh, usually it would not be that long-lasting. But what about the toxic effects? Uh, psilocybin can do damage to brain cells, it can do chromosomal damage. Um, Sometimes once people enter this hallucinatory psychotic state, they're not able to come back from that. And you wouldn't know that someone is vulnerable to this until they tried it. So, you know, I think it's unethical to give these patients that. And of course, at major institutions like that, the patients were given information about all the potential risks and they signed consent. But still, I, I have problems ethically with giving people these very, very dangerous drugs, even if the benefits were remarkable after the fact. Now, what about the argument that, okay, these are people with advanced cancers, uh, whatever that means, so quite likely they're dying anyway. So what's the, the problem, giving them something, even if it is a little toxic? After all, isn't it true that we doctors uh, approach advanced cancer patients by giving them powerful chemotherapy drugs, which are really not unlike poisons uh, that ruin their bone marrow and stop their immune system from making infection-fighting cells and make them vulnerable to life-threatening infections? And... <clears throat> Is it not true that we also subject advanced terminal cancer patients to surgeries which are in some cases mutilating and then uh, also is it not true that we treat advanced cancer patients with radiation which can burn them and damage uh, healthy tissue? Uh, if you look at the argument that way, why quibble about giving them psilocybin? Uh, well, as yet, for better or for worse, radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery are approved treatments for advanced cancer, and uh, they may be curative, even though the side effects are very severe. Uh, the potential side effects of using psilocybin in these patients 
uh, are not known, and I don't think it's worth the risk. Uh, we have safer treatments that can alleviate their anxiety and depression without exposing them to the risks inherent in using psychedelics. So I'm going to remain opposed to it, despite the fact that, admittedly, and much to my chagrin, a lot of major people in the field of psychiatry said they think that this research uh, is worth pursuing. And <clears throat> so there you have it. Um, again, you know, if you, someone close to you is suffering from advanced cancer, even if they had the opportunity to participate in one of these trials, would not recommend it. Next up on psychiatry today, I have always felt that personality traits are much more inheritable than most people would care to admit. Uh, most people tend to think personality traits are developed, but like most of the aspects of our beings, it's not just nature, it's not just nurture, it's a combination of both, and genetics plays a very important role. So I found a study to tell you about showing that personality traits as well as psychiatric disorders have now been linked to specific locations in the genome. <clears throat> a meta-analysis of genome-wide association studies. That's where you look at the entire genome and you look for associations between specific regions of the genome and certain diseases, has identified six genome locations that are significantly linked to certain personality traits. This research comes to us from the University of California at San Diego School of Medicine and was published online in a recent issue of Nature Genetics. The findings also show correlations with psychiatric disorders Although personality traits are heritable, it has been difficult to characterize genetic variants associated with personality until these recent large genome-wide association studies. There are five psychological factors that are commonly used to measure individual differences in personality. There is extroversion versus introversion. Uh, extroversion, of course, reflects talkativeness, assertiveness, and a high activity level. There is neuroticism, as opposed to emotional stability, which reflects negative affects, such as anxiety and depression. There is agreeableness, as opposed to antagonism, which measures cooperativeness and compassion. There is conscientiousness, as opposed to undependability which indicates diligence and self-discipline, and there is openness to experience versus being closed to experience, and it suggests intellectual curiosity and creativity. Psychologists and others define personality types, sets of observable characteristics, based upon quantitative scoring of these five factors. Past meta-analyses of twin and family studies have attributed approximately 40% of variance in personality to genetic factors. Genome-wide association studies 
which look for genetic variations across a large sampling of people, have discovered several variants associated with these five factors. In this new study, researchers analyzed genetic variations among the five personality traits in six psychiatric disorders using data from 23andMe, the well-known privately held personal genomics and biotechnology company, and the Genetics of Personality Consortium, which is a European-based collaboration of genome-wide association studies focusing on personality questions, the UK Biobank, and a company called Decode Genetics, which is an Iceland-based human genetics company. The researchers found, for example, that extroversion was associated with variants in one particular gene and another gene nearby it. Neuroticism was associated with variants on one particular chromosome. Personality traits were largely separated genetically from psychiatric disorders except for neuroticism and openness to experience which clustered in the same genomic regions as the disorders. No surprise with respect to neuroticism, which again is associated with anxiety and depression. In addition, there were high genetic correlations between extroversion and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and between openness and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Neuroticism was genetically correlated with internalized psychopathologies, such as depression and anxiety. They identified genetic variants linked to extroversion and neuroticism personality traits, and the study is an early stage in genetic research and personality, and many more genetic variants associated with personality traits are to be discovered. They found genetic correlations between personality traits and psychiatric disorders, but specific variants underlying the correlations are unknown. The authors note that while the sample size was large, they used only genome-wide association summary statistics that cannot estimate all genetic variance factors. Some studies may have used different methodologies. Interesting nonetheless that we're now learning the genetic components of personality. Well, that's going to wrap it up not just for this show, but for 2016. Hope until we get together in three weeks, you have wonderful stress-free holidays. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. Be back with you January 4, 2017. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.